We are deep into a teaching series here on my Sundays at the podium. This series we're calling Emotionally Healthy. And this series is really about becoming an emotionally healthy church made up of emotionally healthy people. And we said, uh, in the, we've said so far that one of the reasons this is important, one of the reasons we believe we should be talking about this and learning about this is because Jesus was an emotional being and Jesus was emotionally healthy. And we talked about in the very beginning of this series, a couple, three months ago, we talked about some examples of that. So then part of the process then of becoming more like Jesus is to become more and more emotionally mature and emotionally healthy. So we started this series asking the question, what if all of our emotions are places to meet with God? What if God is already there waiting for us? And so far in this series, a quick recap, one paragraph recap. We've looked at the example of Jesus' emotional health. We've talked about his spiritual practices. We've talked about the importance of things like silence, solitude, prayer. We've talked about breaking free from our past. Specifically, we talked about family of origin. Uh, we've talked about identity and calling and accepting the gift of our God-given limitations. And then just a couple weeks ago, we talked about pace of life and hurry sickness. And then we've talked about the tyranny of living for the approval of others. So it's just some light topics we've been diving into here for a few minutes on Sundays. I don't pretend that this is an exhaustive treatment of these topics. This is really just to get you thinking, maybe to get you uh, just, just to maybe whet your appetite a little bit to go dig a little deeper on your own and pursue uh, even a more uh, healthy place emotionally. My prayer for all of us in this series, myself included, for us as individuals, for us as married couples, for us as families, for us as a church, is that God would bring us to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health as followers of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning and we're grateful uh, for the opportunity to gather together um, to, to hear from your word, to look into the scripture and to look at truth that has, is so applicable to our lives. So God, I pray that today, um, as we teach, that it would be clear um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just illuminate our thoughts and our understanding of this topic today. May uh, you be pleased with what happens in our hearts. May you have freedom to do what you want in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I want to start in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read a few verses. Uh, in this, uh, there are all kinds of opinions theological ideas, scientific belief, all kinds. We're all over the place. There's a wide spectrum when it comes to Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not going to get into that today. I would love to someday, and we've done it uh, a few years ago. We talked about this, and I would, I'm okay with talking about that because um, it doesn't matter whether you're a young earth creationist or whether you believe that God was the agent of creation through an evolutionary process. I don't really care this morning. That's, I'm not going to convince you one way or the other. But I want to draw a principle, and I want to draw kind of the foundation for what we're going to talk about out of Genesis 2, okay? So don't let your uh, maybe doubt or questions or skepticism of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, taint the way that you, where this lands with you today. Is that all right? Can, just to, so we're clear on that? All right. Genesis chapter 2, because I don't know, anybody here ever struggled with really getting your brain around Genesis 1 and 2? Anybody at all? Am I the only one? Just four of us, really? Can we be honest? How many of you have ever struggled and wrestled with Genesis 1 and 2? If you just read Genesis 1 and 2 and you're like, oh yeah, there, that's that, that's how that worked. Come on, let's be intellectually honest. It's okay to wrestle with truth. It's okay, all right? So I just want to encourage you to be okay with that. Genesis 2, let's, let's dive in. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created 
when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So Genesis 1, we get that day-by-day thing. In Genesis 2, we get a bit of a recap and a little bit of uh, kind of uh, zooming in on, on the creation of, human, of humans. So it's now, uh, this is verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. Can you imagine what that looked like? For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. <clears throat> That's all just getting, providing the context. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Now I'm going to, just going to, I'm going to suggest to you that there's a little bit of gap between verse 7 and verse 8, because 4, 5, and 6, there's no shrubs, there's nothing green. Verse 8, there's a garden. So let's give it at least a growing season, right? Okay. So the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This so. This fledgling new creature called human is created by God himself, <clears throat> and then he's put into this garden called Eden. Eden is a Hebrew word. We had a little Hebrew lesson last week in Dad's message. <clears throat> and uh, anybody know what this Hebrew word Eden, what that means? Anybody know? That's um, a good guess. It's actually a really good guess. It means delight. So for these new humans, their address is literally a place called Delight. How cool is that? Um, growing up, I lived near a little village called Paradise. That was the name of the little village. Um, so this was delight. When Jewish rabbis talked about Eden, they talked about this idea that we, Dad uh, opened his message with last week, of the idea of shalom. Shalom is another Hebrew word that's usually translated peace in English. But peace does not really at all capture the weight and the texture of the original word. So shalom is peace, but it's more than that. It's health, it's vitality, it's flourishing, it's long life, it's joy, and it's delight. So it's, it's life as God intended. It, it's life as it was supposed to be in the beginning. So it's a one-word category for Eden. And when God made the world, when God made human beings, this is what he had in mind. But sadly, Eden is short-lived. Let's read the next line, chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And if you know the story, this is eventually what happens. Skip down to the end of chapter 3. And this is a tragic turn of events, just to summarize, because Adam and Eve say no to God the Creator. They say yes to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as a result are evicted from the garden. We read this at the end of chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, can we just acknowledge this? Is, these are weird verses. 
okay? This is, this is some sci-fi type fantasy kind of stuff, okay? But in this story, here's the point. <clears throat> there is a crack in the shalom of the world, all right? It's, the, it's like the breaking of a dam because from it comes pain, the pain of distance from God. In Eden, God and Adam and Eve were face to face. We read that God was literally, quote, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, right next to Adam. But now Adam and Eve are shut out and there's distance between humanity and God. The pain of distance also affected Adam and Eve. So distance between human beings. I don't know if you've ever experienced in your relationships. Distance between yourself and another human being. This is where it started. Adam and Eve start with blame shifting. If you know the story, they're at each other's throats. And they're like, the woman you gave me, it was her fault. And she gave me the fruit. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. And, and then the next story, when you keep reading, their sons Cain and Abel are literally at each other's throat. And Cain ends up killing his brother. So then, then there's the pain of distance from the earth. Now it's cursed. And there are thorns and thistles and everything is kind of just screwed up from top to bottom. And the word used in Genesis to capture this kind of tragedy is the word death. It says, when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. This death is more than just the death of a physical body. It's the death of Eden. It's the death of shalom. It's the death of delight. It's the death of everything God originally had in mind. Let's take a step back and recap where we've been so far, what we've covered in the last four or five minutes. We were made for Eden. That was God's intention. We were made for Eden, but we don't live in Eden anymore. Am I right? We were created for a world of shalom, a world of intimacy with God, of intimacy with one another, of a flawless relationship between earth and humanity. That's what we were made for, but that's not the world we live in anymore. Because of that, we have all been born into a world of disappointment. Disappointment is inescapable. There's just no way around it. It is inevitable. No matter how hard you try to shield yourself, protect yourself, fence yourself in, isolate yourself, uh, you know, from and insulate yourself from emotional pain and disappointment, it just, that's not going to work. You can't get away from it because I would argue that every single human being, follower of Jesus or not, every single human being has what I call a latent memory of Eden. Here's what I mean by that. A subconscious, hardwiring, longing for the garden, for shalom, for peace, for delight, for Eden. We see it. We see it in our desire for things like world peace. We see it in our desire for things like an end to racism. We see it in our things like our desire for an end to prejudice, for healing in the tension between ethnic groups, for healing in our families, for reconciliation in our relationships. And it has absolutely no basis in the culture that we grew up in that tends to lean into survival of the fittest. Uh, But still, that desire is in us. It's there, something deep inside of us that knows that this is not the world as it was created to be. That's in our DNA. And we can't get away from our longing for everything that was true of Eden. And because of that, we all experience loss, or what the writer of Genesis would call death. 
Maybe it's the literal death of someone that you love, a spouse, a mom or dad or a child or a friend. Maybe it's a death of a dream or a marriage or a relationship, um, something that you'd hoped for. With death or with loss, whatever language you want to drape it around, comes emotional pain. No matter how cushy and wrinkle-free life has been for you, we all come to a point where we realize that life is not all we'd hoped it would be. So the question is, have you, have you grieved? Have you actually grieved the loss of what you hoped for in this life? <clears throat> we tend to think that grieving is only for people who have lost a family member or a close friend, right? And it certainly is. We tend to look around, we see people who have lost someone they loved, and we think, okay, yeah, of course, grieving is for them. That's healthy. They need that, of course. And absolutely, I mean, yes, absolutely. But then we think, that's not for me. I mean, I'm fine. My family's alive. I'm good. Everyone I care about is, you know, is alive and well. I mean, I've had some losses, but nothing like the people that I know. So I'm fine. I mean, my loved one lived a long, full life. They had a relationship with Jesus. Uh, they, you know, I, uh, I just lost, I just lost something I dreamed about for a long time. So it's not really that big a deal. I just lost a relationship. I'll find another one eventually. You know, I lost something that I was sure that God wanted me to have an experience. So it's kind of a bummer, but I'm not sure I'm really entitled to grieve that. I'm not sure that I've earned the right to grieve that. So let's not be too dramatic here, Todd. The reality is whether you've had it easy or whether you've had it hard or whether life has been difficult or you've experienced all kinds of loss, we all experience death and loss. Maybe for you, it's literally the death of someone you love. Maybe it was a death of, uh, of a marriage that ended in divorce. Maybe it was your parents' divorce. Maybe it was your own divorce. Maybe you're in your 30s and you're thinking, my life is already in shambles I'm all, and I'm just getting started. Wow, this is going to be great. Hold on. And there's betrayal and there's adultery and there's pain and there's broken promises. Maybe it's just a family breakdown in general, okay? Your family of origin is just full of deep tra- trauma, all right? Uh, maybe it's what your parents aren't or weren't. Maybe you struggle and you wrestle with what your father wasn't and isn't. Uh, maybe it's singleness. Maybe it's the death of a dream. Maybe something you hoped for in your career, in your education, or in your life, and you wanted to do that, and you wanted to start this, and you wanted to pursue that, and none of that's happening. Uh, maybe it's, it's abuse in your childhood. Maybe it's just the mistakes you've made, right? Maybe it's not, you know, all this heavy kind of intense stuff. Maybe it's just the ordinary, normal life on planet Earth kind of stuff. You know, when you graduate and you have to say goodbye to all your friends. Uh, when you're, you know, you're here and you're loving life and all of a sudden your friend moves away. Or when your kids move out of the house and all of a sudden you're stuck with your husband and he's more boring than you remember. Uh, you know, and you, get <coughs> and you get older and you gain weight and your back hurts and there's like another wrinkle on your face every day. So there's just, uh, yeah, the ordinary, normal life stuff, but it's not how you dreamed it would be. So let me just say this. It's a waste of time to chart your loss on a continuum of minor to major. That's a waste of time. It's not helpful, and it's usually not healthy. The point is, your loss is your loss, And it's a part of life in a post-Eden world. So we are to grieve. 
We've grieved because we know it wasn't supposed to be this way. It was supposed to be better. We grieve because deep down we hope or we had hoped for more than what we actually are experiencing or have experienced in life. We grieve because all of us, at least at a subconscious level, we all desperately miss Eden. And if you think that's selfish or narcissistic or weak, uh, turn over to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 is kind of how God feels about all this, and it's about to get, the story's about to get really dark and really weird, but I just want to read a couple verses here, and I'm going to read this actually from the New American Standard because I like how it kind of shines some light on this. This is, these, this is what it says, Genesis 6. Then the Lord uh, saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice this line. And the Lord was very sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. God himself grieves. He grieves when we grieve. He grieves over the state of the world. There's no doubt in my mind that God invites us to do the same. Look at this, this is Psalm 13. If you're new to the Bible, the Psalms are essentially uh, ancient Hebrew poetry that Many of them were set to music and they were used for worship um, in the Jewish uh, ancient uh, Israel and Jewish worship at the temple or in Jerusalem and later in the synagogues all over. So when you'd go to the ancient equivalent of church, uh, this is what you would sing. And this is what's fascinating to me, that dozens of the Psalms, actually nearly half of the Psalms, are what are called songs of lament. Lament. Lament is... Anger, frustration, sorrow, pain, honesty, confusion, doubt, and faith all packaged together. That's lament. Lament is when you bring all of your emotional pain before God as an act of worship. So here's an example. Let me read this from Psalm 13. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is a Psalm of David. It says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So far, this doesn't sound like what we think of as worship. Verse 3, look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. (laughs) Dramatic much? And my enemy will say, I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Here's the thing about songs of lament. Verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I'll sing the Lord's praise. For he's been, <laughs> it's been good to me. It's like, really? I don't have a category for that, by the way. You know, right? Where are you, God? What have you done, God? My life is falling apart. I'm about to die here if you don't actually show up. But I'll sing the Lord's praise, for he has been so good to me right? We, we kind of chuckle because most of us don't know how to live with that mixture. We don't know how to, how to live with that tension. We don't have that kind of emotional health all the time, that kind of emotional maturity to one moment lament and the next moment to sing in praise. But this kind of raw, uncut, unedited tension is all over the Psalms. Here's a sampling, a few other just lines out of Psalms. Psalm 42. It says, tears have been my food day and night. 
Psalm 43. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Psalm 77. Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? So many questions. Um, We don't worship like this anymore, right? Have you noticed? Music like this doesn't typically play on K-Love because it's not positive and uplifting. Can you imagine singing some of this at church? God, where are you? I just don't sense you at all. Oh, hallelujah. You know, it's like, I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like you're mad at me. You're angry. You're probably a big jerk. I don't know where you are, God. Let's sing that bridge again. I think I'm going to die if you don't show up. You know, it's like, we don't have a category for that. We've, we've abandoned our category for lament. We've dressed it up. and We kind of fake it. But these psalms of lament are founded in honesty. Honesty before God and honesty before others. And we've been more intentional here in the last few years about uh, introducing songs that kind of have some some element of lament in them um, to bring into our worship experience. Life can be hard. Life can be excruciating at times. But God who made us, who sees us, who sees right through us, wants us to bring all of our emotional pain to him. We don't have to clean it up for him. That's why we have dozens and dozens of songs of lament in the Bible. Because And you're like, why are all these psalms here? It's to remind us that this is how we approach God with that kind of honesty. Because God gives us the freedom to come to him this way, to pray this way, to worship this way, to approach him like that. It's right on the, if you read these, it's right on the the edge of irreverence. The point uh, isn't that to have a good vent at God. That's not the point. Or to just unload on God. The point is intimacy with God. That's the point. To bring all the pain that we carry, to bring the pain that we suppress, to bring the pain that we try to ignore, to bring the pain that we medicate, to to bring the pain that we pretend isn't there, to bring all of that before God, that's the heart and soul of worship. So we were made for Eden, but we don't live in Eden anymore. Because of that, we all experience loss, We all experience death in one shape or another, and so we grieve. Um, And just to get us started here, I I just want to say that's okay. It's not bad or weak or ungodly or unchristian or anti-Jesus to grieve. I've heard people use the, you know, the uh, kind of excuse the absence of grieving in their season of loss, and this is, you know, Church people who say things like, well, dad's in a better place. Mom's with Jesus now. Yes, and that's about them, but what about you? Like, how are you, like, how are you processing this? So the question becomes for you and me then, how? How do we grieve? If we all experience loss, we all experience death, we all uh, experience the death of something, the right fitting emotionally healthy responses to grieve, then how do we do that? How do we grieve well? How do we grieve in a healthy way? So as always in this series, we've looked at the example of Jesus. Let's look to Jesus. Turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11. 
You may be familiar with the story. Uh, we referenced it in part one of the series back uh, a couple years ago. No, it was in March. And uh, John 11, Jesus had friends, which is really important. Let's just not skip past that too quickly. Um, I think the fact that Jesus had friends is a huge part of how he processed his grief. Jesus had friends, and in John 11, we read about the death of one of his best friends. That's a risk you take with having friends, okay? But it's worth it. This best, one of his best friends named Lazarus. How many of you have heard of Lazarus? You know the story. So he's also best friends with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. This is an incredibly sad day for Mary and Martha and for Jesus himself. And so I want to look at, at how Jesus deals with death. And, and you're like, yeah, he brought him back to life. Well, just back up. Let's not, get, let's not run ahead in the story. That's a spoiler. This is actually a fairly long story, and we don't really, I'm not going to look at all of it today, but I encourage you to go back and read the entire chapter, the verses before and the verses after. But for, day, for today, I just want to kind of, I want to kind of parachute in and, and start off right here in chapter 11, verse 32. So we're in the middle of the story. So when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. This is lament. Sounds like the Psalms, right? If you'd been here, where were you, Jesus? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Verse 34. Where have they laid uh, where have you laid him, they asked, or he asked. Come see, Lord, they replied. And then we read this, verse 35. Jesus wept. He wept, and then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Notice, I think when, 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 when Mary comes and meets Jesus and falls at his feet, she's overcome with grief. You ever been there? So overcome you couldn't stand? This is where Mary found herself. And Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary for her attitude. He doesn't rebuke her for asking and questioning his timing. How dare you say that to me? I'm Jesus. He doesn't pull out a Christian cliche and give her a pat on the back. Hey, you know, Mary, he's in a better place. Our loss is heaven's gain. God needed another angel. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not helpful. None of that. Not helpful. Okay. We read that Jesus wept. He entered into her grief, and he wept. I think you compare and contrast Jesus here in John 11 with the kind of junk drawer stereotype of the American Christian response to death. And I would argue that that's often very un-Jesus-like. So Jesus goes to the place of pain. He lets it wash over him. Which kind of leads us to our next principle, and it took me a long time to get here. But if you've been keeping track, or you've been taking notes, or you know we've been trying in this series to give you kind of a principle every, kind of the big idea every week in this series. So this one is about embracing grief and loss. And I've quoted Pete Cesaro quite a bit in this series, but here's another great thought from him on grief and loss. He said, emotionally healthy people embrace grief as a way to become more like Jesus. That's our principle for today. That emotionally healthy people embrace grief as a way to become more like Jesus. They understand what a critical component of discipleship uh, grieving our losses is. Which if you're new to church, discipleship is just a way of saying becoming more like Jesus. And he says it's a significant way uh, to become a more compassionate person like Jesus. Remember that emotional health does not equate to happy 24-7. It's not the perma-smile. 
Sometimes the emotionally healthy, emotionally mature response to life post-Eden is nothing short of grief. That's the emotionally healthy response to a world that we find ourselves in. And if we're honest, most of us don't think of grief this way, right? Most of the time when we experience loss, whether it's major or minor, wherever you are tempted to put it on a spectrum, which we've already said isn't helpful, but our, what we tend to do is we try to medicate in order to numb the pain, to get over it. <laughs> There's more to grief than a pill a couple times a day or medicating with entertainment or shopping or busyness or food or alcohol or relationships or work or serving at church or whatever. Instead of grieving, we tend to, those are what we, we are tempted to do, to do things like we fill our schedule, we buy stuff, we sell stuff, we volunteer, we make big life decisions, but we don't actually bring all of our emotional pain to Jesus. It's true that some people get stuck in grief, right? Perhaps you've experienced this. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're still, maybe right now, it's where you're like, yeah, I guess maybe that's me. You're still, hap- you're still living in what happened a year ago. You're still living in what happened two years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. And you haven't been able to move on and you're stuck. And as true as that is, I think it's even more true that for the majority of us, most of us don't even go there in the first place. But in Jesus, we see him go to the place of pain and stay in the place of pain because he knew there was something God wanted to do in him there. When we move on from a loss and we kind of, you know, um, get over it as fast as we can. Boom, there, that's done. That was like Tuesday. Now it's Sunday. I'm over it. You know, had the funeral. All done grieving now. Signed the divorce thing. Done grieving now. Lost that job, done grieving now. We tend to lean into, well, that was in the past. Nothing I can do about it. I can't change it. That was last week. It's Monday. New life, new day, new week. Let's go. Let's get on with it. I think when we rush through the process, we actually miss out on an opportunity to experience God. When we rush through the process, we miss out on an opportunity to experience close proximity with the Holy Spirit, who is comforter. We miss out on a place for God to bring us to a new place of depth and empathy and compassion and strength and patience and faith and above all intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And we, when we get stuck in grief, yes, that's unhealthy and detrimental to our growth, absolutely, but it's just as dangerous when we move on too quickly. Loss isn't something to get over. It's something to work through. Maybe you're here this morning and none of this has anything to do with you right now in your life. Uh, Just tuck this away for future reference. None of us escapes this. But maybe you're here and you're in a place of pain because you're grieving like right now. Maybe it's, it's physical death. It's you've lost someone you love. Maybe it's something recent. Maybe it was a while ago. And talking about it like this just kind of picks up the scab. And maybe you find yourself stuck. Maybe it's family stuff. Maybe it's a marriage thing. Maybe it's a career thing, an education thing. I don't know. But I want to offer a couple thoughts on how to grieve well as we wrap up. 
So here are a few things you might want to write these down or add these to your notes in the Bible app. This isn't group therapy, by the way. I'm not a grief counselor, but I think these could be helpful as a place to get started. So number one, I would say, see your loss. <clears throat> Sometimes it's obvious, like when somebody you love dies, you're like, okay, I need to grieve that. But a lot of times it's not nearly as obvious. You wonder why you're sad. You wonder why you're not really sure. You, you wonder why uh, you're not motivated to get out of bed in the morning. You wonder why the things that used to bring you joy don't bring you joy anymore. You wonder why people are always saying, why are you depressed? And you start to look beneath the surface and realize, oh, it's because of that thing in my relationship with my dad that I haven't processed. Or, oh, it's that thing because my marriage is just not what I had hoped it would be. Or it's because I'm really stuck in this job for the rest of my life and I didn't realize um, that I'm grieving uh, what could have been. And whatever that is, whatever you fill in the blank with, the key here is in that realization, don't ignore it. Don't minimize it. Because that's what we do. Oh, like my thing, and I know, my thing, I got this thing, but it's nothing like so-and-so because they're like dealing with real stuff because they're like, my thing's no big deal. Don't minimize it. Don't explain it away. Don't skip over. Don't laugh it off. Don't compare it to someone else's thing. Take some time to see it. And then secondly, take it to God. Now, hang with me because then you're like, oh, I knew you'd get there. It didn't take you long. I think of 1 Peter 5 uh, where the Apostle Peter says, cast your anxiety on God because he cares for you. That's the template. Cast all your anxiety, your fear, your worry, your sorrow, your emotional pain, your loss, your grief. Bring it to God. Why? Why? Because he cares for you. Step into God's love for you. And in that process, be honest with God. I go back and read some of the Psalms. And you can bring the same kind of lament to him. It's okay. He can handle it. Let yourself feel. Let yourself feel emotions that maybe you don't think are okay or that you're uncomfortable with. That's okay. Let yourself experience all of that in God's presence. I'm confident that God, your loving Heavenly Father, will meet you in the pain. He's there with you. I believe that when we grieve, He grieves with us. I would argue He's a grieving God right next to grieving people. Number three, take it to your community. Whatever you do, don't grieve alone. And by alone, I mean in isolation, because yes, there's a time to be alone, right? But don't grieve in isolation. We need community. So here's the thing. If you find yourself in a place where you aren't dealing with a grief process right now, build your community right now. Invest in relationships. Invest in friendships. Invest in biblical community. Because when the wheels fall off and you're hit with a loss, those are the people you need in your life. Next, I would say slow down and give it time. Grieving, here's just, grieving usually takes longer than we want it to. Right? Like, why am I not over this? Why did that thing well up in me? I thought that was done. Because when your loved one dies or when your marriage ends or when your teenage and adult children are making self-destructive decisions or when the dream, the picture of your preferred future just isn't going to happen, you don't get over that in two weeks. You shouldn't get over it in a couple weeks. Yeah, that's not healthy. It takes time. And it's in the in-between, between the loss or the death or the event or the tragedy or whatever. It's between that and the healing in that in-between time. That's the hardest, right? When you're confused and you don't know up from down and you're, you're irrational and you're not thinking straight and you're waiting for things to get back to normal, whatever that is. 
So after a loss, you've got to create space and time to process, to trust God, to wait patiently one day at a time. And then next, I would say, let God deepen your intimacy and character. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything, or you could say, emotionally healthy. So practice gratitude. I think of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he said, give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances. <laughs> Again, go back to the Psalms. No matter what you're up against, there is something to thank God for. Here's the thing. We have a, we have a great capacity to wait on God and to surrender to his will. And grieving sometimes uh, break something in our fearful self that wants to run the universe for God. <laughs> right? We tend to take our hands off the controls then and become kinder and more compassionate. And life is stripped of its pretense and its non-essentials. And we get, we're more apt to rid ourselves of the, of the uh, unimportant things in life that others so desperately want and we're liberated from having to impress others and we're characterized by a greater humility and a brokenness and we enter a new uh, vivid appreciation for the sacredness of all life and we have fewer fears and we're, we have greater willingness to take risks and we sense the reality of resurrection in a new way understanding more fully that we are only temporary residents and sojourners in the here and now it's temporary Finally, I would say, number six, don't ever forget resurrection. This is from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 51. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. <clears throat> we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The good news of Jesus and his kingdom is that one day in the future, death will die once and for all. It started with the resurrection of Jesus. It'll end with the resurrection of all of Jesus' followers. And that's the note I want to end on. Because we believe in resurrection. So we are to grieve, yes. Absolutely. It's natural. It's fitting. It's part of the human experience. It's actually necessary for emotionally healthy and mature people. It's a reality of life after Eden. But we're to grieve with hope. Hope, remember, is not wishful thinking. It's not optimism. It's not a self-help pep talk. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good based on the character of God based on who God is. So if you know the end of the Bible, the last few chapters are a glimpse into the world remade. You might recognize it because it's Eden all over again. That's exactly what it is. So Eden is in our past, but it's also in our future. Eden is not where we are now, but it is where we are going. And so we grieve, and as we Grieve and as we lament, as we bring all of our emotional pain to God, we do so not to get stuck in it, not to wallow in it, but with hope. 
with one eye on the horizon, knowing that one day, as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's our future. There's coming a day when there's no more death, there's no more loss, that's all gone. We don't live there now. And we try to make this heaven on earth. It isn't. It's not at all the world that we live in now, but that's the future for all of us who follow Jesus and those of us who place our faith in him. I love what the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation. And uh, these are some of my favorite words in the entire Bible. Here's what he wrote in Revelation 21. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Maybe you've been sitting here and you're thinking, well, this is where this is leading. I'd like in on that. I want in on that. I want in on this promise. I want in on this kind of hope. I want to experience the comfort and presence of my heavenly father. Maybe you've been following Jesus. Maybe you've been hanging out with Jesus, watching, listening, observing, learning, doing life with Jesus, and now you're starting to believe. Not believe like Jesus had some good things to say. He was a pretty good teacher. Most people believe that. But you've wrestled with it. You've investigated, and you've come to the place where you believe that he is who he said he is. He's the holy one sent from God, the son of God himself. If that's the case, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to have a moment in time where you kind of transfer your trust in your own ability to be good enough to a trust in the death of Christ as a payment for your sin, as the bridge that leads you to a relationship with your Heavenly Father. A chance to say, I'm making the decision today to transfer my trust from my effort to be good enough to somehow be in good standing with God. I'm transferring all of that to the fact that Jesus did this for me. I'm no longer going to trust in my ability, my consistency, my efforts to be in good standing with God. That doesn't seem to be working. From here on out, my trust is in that what Christ has done for me that Christ has been the sacrifice for me and I'm fully trusting in him. That's the basis for my right standing with God. So if you're at that point and, and you'd like to do that, I want you to join me in a prayer. And you can change the words. You can pray it with your eyes closed, your eyes open. It uh, doesn't matter. But I want to give you an opportunity to have a moment where you can look back and say, that was the day. That was the day I made the decision to stop trusting myself and to trust fully in Jesus. Let's all uh, just pray together here. And I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe He came to be my Savior. I believe that when He died, He died for my sin. I believe that I can have a right standing with You through what He did. So today I'm placing all my trust in Christ's death on the cross as the payment for my sin. Thank You for the forgiveness of sin. Thank You for welcoming me, welcoming me into Your family. And thank You for leading me on this path to believing in Your Son. Listen, just, just right, that's not anybody, just, just let that sit and sink in for a second. Let's not rush past this moment. Because I don't know where you're at, I don't know your story, I don't know your journey. I just want to respect the fact there's somebody here that's just, this is your moment in time and want it to be your moment. Look up here. If this topic of embracing grief and loss has found you at a place where this resonates with you, you're dealing with a recent loss, you're in the middle of it right now, 
Or maybe you're realizing you're stuck in the process. It's not recent, but you're stuck. Maybe you quit moving forward and you're healing a while back and you found yourself stuck. Um, I want to play a song. And I want to invite you to listen to the song. This is a song that moves me every time I hear it. Um, it's a song by one of my favorite artists, uh, All Sons and Daughters. In the song, there's an incredible statement, a lyric, that if we can get our hearts and minds uh, around this, it has the potential to change the way that we process grief and loss, those experiences of life. The lyric says, When the pieces seem too shattered to gather off the floor, and all that seems to matter is that I don't feel you anymore, I need a reason to sing. I need to know that you're still holding the whole world in your hands. And even, even if the theology of that uh, means that God may not be controlling every little detail of my life, because after all, how could he, right? How could he control the details of my life that are the direct result of my choices uh, or the choices of other people in my life? Because how could he override my free will? And that's a different theological sermon. I shouldn't start it right now. But my, he couldn't and he wouldn't. So even if all this means is that while God chooses not to intervene, he still knows. He still cares. He is not apathetic. He is not absent. He may be silent, but he is not absent. And you and I, we are still the ones he loves. Maybe you need to know that. That God is still holding your future in his hand. So listen to this. Let this speak to you.
I need a 